Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, first it was the ECB, and then it was the Bank of Japan, cutting interest rates overnight to negative 0.1. That is the first time in this 20-year experiment in cheap money, I think they've been at zero, but they've never gone negative until just now. And, you know, one of the most ironic parts of, of the move is the governor of the Bank of Japan, Kodora, just eight days ago, had told the Japanese parliament that the Bank of Japan was not seriously considering negative interest rates. Yet in the span of a week, they went from not even seriously considering it to actually doing it. And in fact, what Kodora said was that not only have they already raised lowered rates to negative, but they may make them even more negative in the future. So they've, they've burst through that, that floor, right? They've gone from zero to negative 0.1. And so now, you know, who knows how much more negative they're going to go if they have to. And he also hinted that maybe they would expand their access purchase program, that, you know, their own quantitative easing program. He didn't say that they were expanding it yet, but he left the door open to an expansion. And so that was enough to send global stock markets rising. In fact, here in the U.S., the Dow Jones finished up almost 400 points, 396 points. The Nasdaq was up better than 100 points. This is one of the strongest days I've seen in some time, up 107 points on the Nasdaq. So obviously still a big down month. I think maybe the Dow is down about 6%. NASDAQ maybe down about 8%. Of course, it was a lot worse a week ago. Uh, And so this probably isn't the worst January ever anymore. It probably got saved. It was a double barrel of the ECB coming out and saying there's no limit to what they would do. And now the Bank of Japan proving that zero is certainly not the lower bound for them as they moved into negative territory. But as I said from the beginning, two out of three Ain't bad, but it ain't going to work. I think that the Fed is going to have to join the rate-cutting party. Right now, the Fed is the lone holdout among central banks, and that's still helping the dollar. You know, the dollar was very strong today against the yen, but also against the euro. The dollar index now almost back up at 100. 
Uh, yesterday was trading in the 98s, although some of the other beaten down currencies like the Canadian Aussie dollar, they were relatively flat today. It was just the QE currencies that got clobbered. But the economic data in the United States is not good. You know, we did get the first estimate of fourth quarter GDP. You know, when the year began, everybody was looking for the fourth quarter to be, I don't know, two, two and a half percent ish. But as all the horrible economic news, you know, kept pouring in throughout the quarter, expectations were gradually reduced so that by yesterday, the consensus for the fourth quarter was just 0.9%. And we managed to come in below that at 07 And remember, what I've been saying is I still believe that by the time we get the final revision of this GDP number, we could end up being below zero. It doesn't take much to take an initial estimate of 0.7 below zero, because we still have more data that's going to come out uh, that's going to bear on this. And I think that data is going to be bad. But of course, the only way the government was able to manufacture a GDP of 0.7 was to pretend that the inflation rate was just 0.8, right? Meaning that inflation is running at an annualized rate of less than 1%. And of course, the Federal Reserve supposedly has this 2% target. And the reason they're going to be raising rates is to get inflation to 2% when according to the GDP, inflation is running at just eight tenths of 1%. But that means nominal GDP is only going up by 1.5%, which means if the inflation rate is actually higher than 1.5%, which I believe it is, then we are in a contraction. In fact, I've many I've pointed this out many times before. If we had an honest look at inflation in the GDP, I think it would reveal that the economy has been in recession for pretty much the entire recovery, which makes a lot more sense to me because this recovery feels a lot like a recession. It doesn't feel like any other recovery we've ever experienced. And maybe that's because it's not a recovery. Maybe that's because it's a recession. And I think that whole that recession is actually going to get a whole lot worse because of um, what's going on. But the way the media has been spinning this all day, even though they're reporting that the GDP was 0.7, they're reporting that the entire year... GDP grew by 2.4% in 2015. Every article I've read, and if you don't trust me, just Google it yourself. Just look at any article on the U.S. economy and GDP, and it's going to say that the economy grew by 2.4% in 2015. That's not true. The actual growth rate is 1.8%. Well, if the economy grew by 1.8%, Why are all the media outlets spinning it that it was 2.4? Well, here's what's going on. First of all, if you just measure the increase in GDP from December 31st, 2014 through December 31st, 2015, the increase is 1.8. The GDP at the end of 2015 was 1.8% bigger than it was at the end of 2014. That is how a normal person would measure the GDP. It grew 1.8%. But the government doesn't want to admit that because 1.8% is a pretty low number. That's the lowest it's been in three years. And obviously, why would the Fed wait for the lowest 
annual growth rate in three years to finally raise rates. In fact, why did she wait until we had a quarter where it was only 0.7? And, you know, the last time the, we had a quarter this low, it was in the doubly seasonally adjusted Q1 uh, when we were buried under lots of snow. Well, that didn't happen uh, in the fourth quarter. If anything, we had a very mild December much more mild than is normally the case. So that probably helped out the numbers in December. So if we didn't have such a mild December, if we had a normal December, maybe that 0.7 would have been lower. But if the GDP increased by 1.8%, why is the media saying 2.4? Well, if you take the average of the GDP growth rates for 2014, and compare that to the average in 2015, then you get an increase of 2.4%. But what possible purpose would there be in comparing the averages? What are the, the averages don't mean anything. If you want to know what happened to the economy in 2015, you don't compare it based on the average. You compare it to how did it finish 2014 and how did it finish 2015? Because you want to know where you are right now and how much progress you made in the year. In fact, everybody who's hearing that, if they hear from the, the news, the economy grew 2.4% in, in 2015, you're going to assume that the GDP was 2.4% larger at the end of the year than it was at the beginning of the year. But you'd be wrong. It's only 1.8% larger. What they're referring to is the average. And the reason that the average uh, GDP is 2.4% higher is because last year, most of the growth rate took place in the second half of the year rather than the first half of the year. And so on average, uh, you, you have a bigger gain if you're measuring uh, averages than just looking at, at where the years ended. But who cares? I mean, suppose somebody that was 200 pounds at the end of 2014. At the end of 2015, they were 220 pounds, right? They gained 20 pounds. That's where they are. They're 20 pounds heavier. But it's possible that on average, that person in 2014 might have been heavier than he was on average in 2015. But that doesn't mean he lost weight. If you, if you gain 20 pounds, you can't claim that you lost weight because on average, uh, you, were, you were less heavy in 2015 than you were in 2014. It doesn't matter what the average was earlier in the year. What counts is what do you weigh now? And that's the bottom line on the GDP. This comparing averages doesn't matter. How much did the economy actually grow? What is the change in the U.S. GDP from the end of 2014 to the end of 2015? It's just 1.8%. No matter how much they want to slice it and dice it, they can't try to claim it's 2.4%. And by the way, the national debt grew far higher than 1.8% in 2015. So our debt is growing much faster than our economy, which means our debt to GDP is going up. And of course, that means it's going to be harder and harder to service that debt, especially if the Federal Reserve were to follow through with its commitment to actually raise interest rates. But if you think about what's going on with the ECB going negative and the JGB going negative, why is the U.S. the only one that's not doing that? I mean, after all, the U.S. economy is arguably uh, weakening faster than any of those others. In fact, if you, you want to wonder, why did the Bank of Japan take interest rates negative when just, you know, eight days ago they said they weren't even considering it? Now, did they lie? Because you would imagine if they, were, if they decided 
to make interest rates negative today. They must have been considering it eight days ago. I mean, what, they just did it off the seat of their pants? They hadn't even considered it, and they just made a snap decision? Right? It seems likely that they were considering it, and then they lied. Or they weren't considering it at all, but something happened in the last eight days that was so drastic that they had no choice. I mean, because certainly the Japanese economy is not in much worse shape than it was eight days ago. Certainly, if they're worried that there's not enough inflation in Japan, all that inflation didn't go away in the past eight days. See, the only thing that's been happening during the last eight days is the stock market's been getting clobbered. And that's the same thing that's been happening in the United States, and that's been happening in Europe. The reason that the ECB and the JGB are stepping up to the QE plate or the negative interest rate plate is to bail out the stock markets. And everybody is hoping that the Fed doesn't have to step up and do the same thing. Because if the Fed steps up and has to do this, then the game is over. Because remember, as I said before, the U.S. is the poster boy for how QE works, how 0% interest rates works. Because supposedly our economy is all cured. We're healthy. We got just the right amount. Right, just the right dosage of 0% interest rates and QE, and we're totally healthy. And if we have to admit that we've relapsed, if we have to go back down to zero, then on what basis does Japan pretend that what they're doing is going to work? On what basis does Europe claim that what they're doing is going to work when the only example of it working is America? But of course, it hasn't worked in America. It has failed miserably in America. Just nobody wants to admit it yet. But you would think in Japan, they've been doing it for so long. I mean, can you imagine, you know, they've been in this, you know, recession, whatever it is, you know, three, four recessions over 20 years, and interest rates have been practically zero the entire time. And so they're sitting around thinking, hey, what's the problem here in Japan? Aha, I figured it out. Interest rates are too high. They're just not low enough. I mean, I mean, of all the things that would be a problem, has it ever dawned on anybody in Japan or anywhere in the world that maybe the problem is that rates are too low? I mean, if your rates are practically zero and you're having all these problems, isn't it more likely that the problem is rates are too low than that they're too high? But no, it's like no matter how low they are, it wouldn't dawn on a banker or a politician to figure out that the low rate is the source of their problem. Because no matter how low it is, their solution is, well, we got to go lower. And now that they got to go negative, I guess it opens up a whole new, uh, you know, policy tool. Because, who? I mean, how uh, negative can they go, right? Limbo, interest rate limbo. How low can you go? I mean, because if you can go minus 0.1, can't you go minus 0.2, minus 0.3? How, how about minus 1, minus 2, right? I mean, who knows? Well, this is a whole new policy tool. But obviously, the Federal Reserve is going to follow these central banks into that monetary abyss. But right now, the fact that, you know, we're positive and talking about raising rates, even if we never do it, and the Bank of Japan and uh, the ECB are negative and talking about getting more negative, talking about doing more QE on a relative basis, that still makes the U.S. dollar look attractive. And therefore, that still results in flows going into the U.S., but that's still going to continue the underlying economic problems that are responsible for the turmoil in the markets. And remember, none of this is going to keep the U.S. economy out of recession. 
The fact that the Japanese lower their interest rates, the fact that the Europeans lower their interest rates, that is not going to change anything on Main Street USA. And the fact of the matter is corporate profits are under pressure. Retail sales are under pressure and the layoffs are going to come. And it's not going to matter what the global monetary policy is. This U.S. cyclical recession is already underway. And of course, you know, we're not going to get the official confirmation for many, many months, but I think it's already here. And it's only a question of time before the Federal Reserve joins in on this party, because it only makes sense. I mean, so the whole world is a mess, except for America. Why would that be? I mean, what are we doing that's so much different from all these other countries? We're doing the same thing. We're running huge deficits. We got super cheap interest rates. We're inflating asset bubbles. The main difference is those other countries don't have the enormous external debt that we do. They don't have the huge trade debts that we do. They're not debtor nations. I mean, Europe is a creditor. Japan's a creditor. We are the world's biggest debtor. And so we've got whatever problems they've got in spades. And so it's only a question of time. People are still living in denial. And of course, nobody cared about this weak GDP number. And you know what? Everybody is still looking for two, two and a half percent for the first quarter. Why? I mean, given what a weak fourth quarter we had and given all the, you know, the damage in the markets, notwithstanding this uh, cheap money induced rally. And a lot of it was probably short covering. But just because we've had this rally based on the BOJ and the ECB, that doesn't change that dynamic. So why would anybody believe that the fourth, the first quarter of this year is going to be so much stronger than the fourth quarter of last year. I mean, the only thing that really held up the GDP last year was the housing market and uh, somewhat consumer spending. But number one, the big increase in consumer spending, by far, the category that showed by far the biggest rate of growth was health care, Obamacare. A bunch of people spent money on Obamacare in 2015 that weren't spending it in 2014. I mean, so what? I mean, we're not better off because we spent a lot more money on health care. We're probably not even healthier. We probably got less care for more money. We're not better off. We're worse off. And so we're not going to get as big a boost out of that in, in, 20, in 2016. And also housing. I mean, housing kind of bailed out. In fact, I think that this fourth quarter print would have already been negative had we not had a bit of a surge in housing at the end of the year. And to what would you attribute such a surge? See, what I think happened is everybody knows the Fed's going to raise rates, right? They've been talking about that. The Fed's going to raise rates. The Fed's going to raise rates. And so would-be homeowners are probably thinking, okay, this is my chance. The Federal Reserve is going to be raising rates. And so now I got to buy a house. I got I to get in under the gun while I can still get a cheap mortgage. And the home builders are probably thinking the same thing. We better hurry up and get these houses built, get them ready to go, because we want to sell them while the people can still borrow a bunch of money to buy the houses, because we know that people buy houses based on debt, and the mortgage rate is going to be very important. And I think a lot of that psychologically might have impacted the rush to buy homes towards the end of 2015. Well, that rush is probably over. I doubt you're going to see... That happened again in 2016. I mean, because if the Fed ends up not raising rates and keeping them at zero, okay, well, I guess, you know, there was no reason to hurry. And if they do keep raising rates, which I doubt, but that's over with. And in fact, the, the rush of the rate-sensitive people is probably over. And now what's going to happen 
in, in 2016 is now you're going to get all these layoffs. And now some of the people who shouldn't have bought homes a few years ago, uh, who now no longer have a job and don't have the means to make their mortgage payment, you're going to start to see uh, some people skipping their mortgage payments, some of the homes moving into foreclosure. So I think the housing pro- problem or the, is going to resume maybe in 2016 as the economy goes back into recession. So if we don't have the boost from housing, if we don't have uh, the boost from healthcare spending. What's going to boost GDP uh, in 2016? Plus, we still have a massive, massive inventory overhang uh, left over from 2015 that needs to be worked out. We still had inventories contributing positively, particularly in the second quarter. That's where we got that 3.9% quarter. That was the only decent quarter, right? Because the first quarter uh, was less than one. The fourth quarter was less than one. The, se- the third quarter was two, which isn't even two is not that great. We had one strong quarter, but most of that was a big build in inventory, which we now know was a huge mistake. But we're going in to 2016 with massive inventory overhang. So you're not going to get a lot of inventory accumulation during 2016. You're probably not going to get any. Uh, so this, I think, 2016 GDP wise is going to be a much weaker year than 2015. In fact, I think this is going to be the weakest year since 2010, right? 2009 was negative, and then 2010 was the first year of the recovery. And I think this year, if we're not in a recession, it's still going to be the weakest year since the recovery began in 2010. And also, you know, I talked about all of the weak sales that the brick and mortar retailers, you know, Macy's, which, by the way, Macy's warned again uh, today. Their sales are going to be even lower than they said before. But it was Nordstrom's. It was The Gap. It was Urban Outfitters. Uh, uh, all these different companies, one after another, were coming out with bad sales. And the media kept saying, well, it's because everybody is shopping online. And sure, yes, there was an increase in online sales, but it wasn't nearly large enough to offset the decrease in the bricks and mortar. But one of the few companies that didn't participate in today's rally was Amazon because Amazon came out with earnings after the close yesterday and they disappointed. Their holiday sales and earnings were less than what the street was looking for and the stock was down 8%. And and so not only were sales disappointing in bricks and mortar, but they were disappointing in Amazon. And of course, Amazon is the granddaddy in retail sales. And, you know, one of the reasons that so many people are shopping at Amazon, you know, is because they can get such a good deal because Amazon doesn't care about making a profit. You know, most brick and mortar stores, they need to make a profit. I mean, they're, they're not publicly traded. Some of the big ones are, but a lot of the smaller uh, retailers, I mean, they're owned by individuals. They need a profit. They don't have stockholders that they can sell shares to. They, they got to pay their bills. They, you know, they, they, they need a profit. They can't lose money on every sale. Amazon doesn't care. They don't care how much money they lose because Wall Street keeps buying their stock. Because as long as they can grow the top line, no one cares what's going on at the bottom line. Well, maybe they're starting to care because uh, that 8% drop was a pretty big drop. But the stock is still up in the stratosphere. But my point is, hey, if Amazon is having trouble, if Amazon is not seeing the top line growth, and, and the brick and mortar companies aren't either, that shows you that the consumer is not nearly as strong as everybody thinks he is. Now they think, well, the consumer, he's gotta be strong because we have all these jobs. No, we don't have all, we have a lot of low paying jobs. 
I mean, people have two or three jobs. They could barely get by. That doesn't mean they have a lot of extra cash burning a hole in their pocket or all the people that have left the labor force. And, you know, everybody keeps waiting, right, for this gas benefit to kick in, right? They keep expecting the consumer to start spending the windfall from cheap gas prices. Well, I got news for you. It's already kicked in. That's the main thing that's holding the average consumer afloat. He's holding on to cheap gas prices. That's all he's got going. We've already seen the benefits of cheap gasoline. It's just that they're obscured by all the negatives. I mean, people's health insurance premiums are rising a lot faster than their gas bill is falling. And so net, they're worse off. Yes, they're getting a benefit from cheap oil, but it's hard to perceive it because you don't see the extra spending because it's being spent on health care. I mean, where do you think consumers are getting all this money to buy all this expensive health care? Well, one place they're getting it is they're, they're, they're spending less money on gas. But some consumers, too, by the way, because gas prices are cheap, they end up buying a car that gets less gas mileage. So even though gas is cheap, they don't actually spend less money on it because they end up buying more gas because the car they buy is less energy efficient. So we're putting our gas savings right back into the gas tank. So it doesn't actually benefit the economy. But the important thing is what happens when oil prices rise, right? Because if the dollar is going to turn, which I think it's going to do, oil prices are going to go up. But, you know, all this printing out of Japan, all this printing out of Europe, that's got to have an effect. People don't seem to worry about it. They only care about money printing if the Federal Reserve is printing it. But if the, G- if the Japanese are printing it and the Europeans are printing it, that's still a lot more money. And you, you can talk about the glut of oil all you want. But, you know, there's a lot more paper than there is oil. And it's a lot easier to create the paper uh, than it is to pump the oil. So the inflation is going to be here. But, of course, it's going to be there in a much bigger scale uh, when Janet Yellen uh, finally adds her voice to the chorus and joins the party. But, of course, she's going to have to look for some kind of excuse. And and I think it's going to be the global economy and what's happening overseas. And it's not her fault uh, that the Bank of Japan went negative and the ECB went negative. And the Fed might you know have to admit, well, we're going to do this, uh, but it's because of everything else that's going on beyond our control and because these other problems have now spilled over into the U.S. economy and it's affected our labor markets, it's affected our inflation outlook. And as a result, uh, we're going to be, you know, aborting our our plans for raising interest rates. Uh, We're going to have to go back to zero. We may have to go to negative, but everything's okay because eventually we're going to reverse all this and uh, we're going to normalize policy and we're going to shrink our balance sheet. It's just that we're going to have to go back to QE first. There's so much factually incorrect information and underreporting by legacy media today. Shouldn't there be truth in media? Well, there is. Truth in Media. Recently, a novel thought is now a reality with TruthinMedia.com. Led by award-winning journalist Ben Swan, TruthinMedia.com is the source for uninfluenced, reliable, fearless news where journalists pursue real questions, not conspiracies. Make truthinmedia.com your default browser's homepage today and get breaking news and commentary that speaks the truth to power. It's also where you can tune into The Peter Schiff Show every week. Visit truthinmedia.com today. That's truthinmedia.com. Access the Truth in Media RS feed by visiting truthinmedia.com forward slash feed. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. 
It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They're all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold. Today, it's more important than ever to understand the value of gold in your portfolio and to keep a close eye on major market developments. Subscribe to my monthly video cast and you'll be the first to hear my latest analysis on gold investing and the currency wars. Visit goldvideocast.com right now to subscribe for free. I call the dot-com bust, then the housing bust, and I advise clients to diversify into foreign equities and hard assets while the rest of Wall Street laughed at me. Now I want to keep you up to date on the next crisis that is brewing. My gold video cast also includes personal interviews I've conducted with other contrarian investors like Jim Rickards and Axel Merck. Gold has gone up 256% since 2003, but it has a lot further to go. Don't miss the rally. You can prosper during this time of currency wars, but only if you stay educated. Get a free subscription to my gold video cast at goldvideocast.com. That's goldvideocast.com.